Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Remember back in the good old innocent days where, you know, you'd maybe go into the ocean on a warm day and you'd go, well, this is like bath water. Or you'd say, this tea is like bath water. I feel like bath water may have been ruined forever. (laughs) Or it just might be highly specific from now on. And when you hear me say this, you might know, okay, they're going to be talking about salt burn. We are. We're going to be talking about uh, what happens when you go to school and there's a break. Whether it's the summer break or the winter break, where do you go and who do you go with? Uh, We'll be talking about Saltburn and the Holdovers. Both of these movies are, to a certain degree or other, in the conversation for some of the major awards. They're turning up on some top ten lists, but the Holdovers more than Saltburn, I would say. Uh, People are having a lot more fun with Saltburn. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, I'll stop babbling and introduce the panelists on the news today. Zandra Ellen is a producer uh, at Pineapple Street Studios. Uh, Sam Hadleman works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Hadleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. She's the author of The Essays Only You Can Write, which I believe is number four on the New York Times bestseller list right now. That's an alternative fact, but... But it's a good alternative fact. So uh, we're going to talk uh, about these two movies. Uh, and I should say that Zandra has also started a substack called How Can I Make This About Me, which she might do today. I mean, make this about her. Uh, but let's begin before we even get to the panel. Let's hear a scene from Saltburn. Uh, let me set it up a little bit. It is very much the story of a um, young man named Oliver Quick who's attending Oxford. I might add that the director, Emerald Fennell, is Oxford educated as well. Um, he conceives an interest in a rich and beautiful uh, young man named Felix Catton, played by Jace, Jace, uh, Jacob Alordi. Barry Keoghan, by the way, plays Oliver Quick. You might remember him from the Banshees of Ed Sheeran. Uh, and so let's play a little, uh, little scene here where Felix and Oliver are having a little bit of an interaction after Felix takes uh, Oliver home for summer break to his family manor, a place which makes Downton Abbey look like a trailer. Uh, here we go, A1 cat. God, Ollie, I'm sorry mom asked so many rude questions. Don't take it personally. Someone unpacked my suitcase. Uh, yes, I should have told you they do that here. The maids will report back to mum, by the way, so I hope that you didn't pack anything scandalous. Just my old boxes. Oh no, they're used to that, don't worry. Duncan will be thrilled. Oh, uh, I hope you don't mind. I had them hang up an old school dinner jacket. We, uh, we dressed for dinner here, so I didn't want you to be caught short. Dressed for dinner? Yeah, it's like, it's like black tie. Could have brought one. Oh no, don't be silly. I mean, I have a spare, it'd be a waste. Do you have cufflinks though? 
That's alright, we'll get it sorted. I'll, uh, I'll get you some. I'm really happy you're here. I'm sorry that everything's so old fashioned. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I should also say that Oliver is, in the words uh, of Johnny Rivers from the poor, poor side of town, uh, he is uh, not accustomed to this kind of luxury. Uh, although it turns out that Oliver's story is kind of its own wheels within wheels thing. So let's get going with the panel here. Uh, and Zandra, why don't you, in fact, whether you want to make it about you or not, get us going on Saltburn. I, I don't know. Maybe just kind of give me a sense of where you are. The last time you were on, which was quite recently, I said I wanted to talk about Saltburn. And you, although you had not seen it yet, said that you might be eager to do such a thing. So so how did that work out for you? <laughs> for you? Well, it's I'm I'm definitely going to make it about me, by the way. Um, I actually don't remember saying that I did want to talk about it. I remember specifically saying that I had no interest in seeing this movie or was very skeptical of it because I have a very complex relationship with the director, Emerald Fennell, who um, I her her prior movie, Promising Young Woman, I turned hating that movie into my personality for a brief period of time. Um and I think that I, so I went into this movie, you know, with a lot of, with with that context and also with a lot of like ringings in my ear, just reading some of the commentary, uh, believing that I was going to absolutely hate it. Um, and just to kind of talk a little bit about Promising Young Woman for just a second, one of the things that I really found so upsetting about that movie was that it dressed itself in this kind of patina of these like feminist signifiers and it kind of insulated itself from any criticism. So I remember a lot of people like men in particular were sort of whispering about like what a failure they considered it, but they were afraid to say that loudly um, because they were afraid that it would be decried as a misogynist. And that kind of enraged me. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised by this movie and how little it offended me because it has absolutely nothing to say. And it wasn't like purporting to have anything to say, right? Like this is a movie that you watch and you're just sort of like, oh, this kind of has nothing on its mind. It's pretty empty. It's pretty vapid. And on a certain level, I genuinely prefer that. I mean, I think that unfortunately there are a lot of kind of character and story level problems that I think that we can get into throughout this conversation that make it kind of like a capital B, capital M bad movie. But I didn't like, I wasn't offended by it on a cellular level. It actually like very much <laughs> held my attention and I found it kind of interesting. It was, it was definitely a big swing, um, which I appreciate and it all kind of fell apart, but that's okay. I'm like, I'm kind of okay with that at the end of the day. All right, uh, Sam, uh, how about you? I know that you actually went and saw this at the uh, movie theater. I don't know if when you came home, you ordered a uh, Jacob Elordi-scented uh, candle, bathwater, excuse me, Jacob Elordi's bathwater-scented candle from Etsy, which is something that you can do, by the way. Uh, they they actually <laughs> purport to to have a candle that you know gives you that whole experience, at least at an olfactory level. But Sam, tell me about uh, seeing the movie and how you felt. Um, sorry, the, the, the sound of you saying bathwater for the fourth time yeah. in uh, 13 minutes is it's, like ringing in my we're brain. Gonna, well, I'm going to uh, say bathwater many more times. Yeah, that, that can't be allowed by the FCC. Um, I actually liked Promising Young Woman. Let me let me start there. I don't think I'm the, the, the resident expert on it, but I really enjoyed it as a film. Um, and Saltburn, 
I didn't really have a ton of expectations. Um, I've just been hearing a lot of chatter about it. And yeah, I, I don't know. I was having a conversation with my friends last night, kind of telling them my thoughts, which I'll get into now. Like, I just thought it was kind of pointless. Like, it just didn't have like an audience or like depth. And I understand that like there are movies like that where that's like totally fine, totally cool. Like, it's it's fine to dress it up. But if you're if you're going to do an A24, two and a half hour movie, like think about all the nitty gritty details, because I watched um, a really good piece in Vanity Fair with a director about how they set up the house and the shots and the lighting and made sure that this was also tedious. And I was like, where was this in the story? Um, the nuts and bolts of it are good. It was really funny. I think that was the thing that what like the advantage of watching the theater i actually had to like see people's reaction and like you know let off a couple laughs and that and the bathwater scene i wish you guys could have seen how people reacted to it because i was at the bam and brooklyn and all those hipsters were twitching um but i loved barry i hope i'm saying his name right barry keegan i think, uh, I his, think it's keogan but don't keogan. don't uh, yeah bet on i think he's gonna end up being the actor of a generation so i whatever you put him in i think it's gonna end up well i like jacob el El i should probably figure out and say these people's names but i i enjoyed like i said the nuts and bolts of it it just felt so dressed up and hollow and just one of those movies that was kind of made for twitter discourse and i didn't hate it i didn't love it it was just kind of there Right. Not just Twitter discourse. I think this movie, I don't know whether it was made with this in mind, but you couldn't have made a more apt movie to release, particularly release uh, onto streaming during the holidays when people are sitting around and, you know, and, and talking to one another and, and making jokes and then sending stuff to other people who aren't uh, at their holidays because they're somewhere else because they didn't get invited to Saltburn or wherever you are. And the result of that is that the, this movie has made four billion appearances on TikTok. I mean, TikTok loves this movie, uh, and and it's really getting an, an awful lot of views of some of the clips. Yeah, so there are, according to Deadline, Saltburn-related uh, clips have notched up four billion views. I should have said that more clearly. Four billion views on, on TikTok. So this is a movie—see, <laughs> I think this is, was a movie that was almost— unintentionally made for stuff like that. But Irene, I want to get to you too and uh, hear what you're thinking. All right. Well, um, it offended me on a cellular level, I would say. It really did offend me ultimately, but not for the reasons that one might think or, you know, that someone might think. I loved listening to that clip. Uh, Do you have cufflinks though in that? (laughs) That was so great. You know, I don't have, oh, oh, I I could have brought my dinner jacket if you had told me in advance. Okay, no problem. I have one, but do you have cut cufflinks? Yeah. Um, that was great. And I felt like it was, I went in expecting to like it because I actually also did like Promising Young Woman. I thought it was good. I liked the sort of edginess of it a lot. And it sort of made sense to me as a movie. Um, it's interesting, Sandra, what you say about the feminist signifiers and people being afraid to, to cr- critique it. But yeah, I mean, it definitely wasn't very friendly to men at all. But I that didn't bother me. And I love Carrie Mulligan. I thought her acting was good. And I loved actually Carrie Mulligan in Saltburn also. She had a relatively small part, but it was just so great to see her after seeing her in Maestro because she was the opposite or in some ways an opposite, maybe not not the opposite. But um, there there, you know, no spoilers, um, but the movie sort of took a turn that was was what made me feel offended by it because I felt like it did have a, it did have sort of a, a subtext that I found 
rather distressing um, by the end of the movie. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it up to that point. I thought the depiction of everyone, the acting was amazing. The depiction of the school and the, so and the social class differences and everything was fantastic. So I think it's kind of worth watching, but where it goes at the end uh, really threw me in a way that I thought was um, toxic even for, for, for what it was kind of saying indirectly. I think that, first of all, you know, I know that some of you sort of saw this movie in terms of maybe Parasite, um, kind of about class warfare. Um, there's been certainly a, a lot of movies like that uh, last year, including Triangle of Sadness uh, and The Menu. Um, we're, see, I thought this was sort of funnier than that. I guess Triangle of Sadness kind of funny in its own way, but... And, and I, I do want to say that we haven't really talked about the rest of the cast. We said Barry Keoghan is Oliver. He's the lead. Jacob Elordi is his object of desire. Uh, but when we get to Saltburn, we meet the family. And the family is Rosamund Pike mm. as Lady Elspeth and Richard E. Grant as Sir James. Carrie Mulligan is a guest. I love the fact, Irene, that she's referred to officially in the credits. Her part is Poor Dear Pamela. That's the name of her role because she's this waif who is kind of washed up at Saltburn and they can't get rid of her. Um, and you can see it on her face so perfectly yeah. that she is Poor Dear Pamela. Yeah. And, and Sorry, go on. I, you know, yeah. Zandra, I don't think of Rosamund Pike as a particularly funny actress. I think she's just hilarious in this over and over again. She and Richard E. Grant are just these superlative upper class twits. Uh, you know, at one point, <laughs> they're planning a party and Rosamund Pike, they're talking about how many guests to have. It's going to be Oliver's party and Oliver doesn't really have any friends, but they're just going to invite people anyway. And she says, her, her character says something like, well, how, how many people should we have? A hundred? And then she goes, well, you know, it inevitably turns into 200. As though this was something we were all completely familiar with. And then her description of when she once was a lesbian and why she stopped because it was all a little bit too wet down there in the end. Uh, I just was falling out of my chair. I, I just thought, and her delivery of these lines is really, really funny. Uh, Richard E. Grant's character, when the party is mentioned, he goes, can I wear my suit of armor? <laughs> Which turns out to be completely what he means. It is not a metaphor. So, Xandra, I don't know. Did did I mean, how funny did was the funniness of the movie enough to kind of keep you in the game? Oh, I absolutely. I mean, this this movie does not work without Rosamund Pike from from my perspective. Mm -hmm. I thought that she was absolutely hilarious. I don't think I've ever seen her play a character like this, but it was like every single line delivery was so, so spot on. Um, she is I, I kind of felt like she was a little bit in a different movie than everybody else, but it was like totally fine for me um, where I was just like, yeah, this woman just happened. And, and Richard E. Grant as well, where he was um, he was a little bit more like not he wasn't such a central character, but he was um, but he was definitely delivering when he was on screen. Um, and then, in, you know, in terms of some of the other performances, I am the like number one Barry Keoghan fan. I, but I do think I do consider him a character actor. And I felt like this was a really, really underwritten, strange role where there just wasn't a lot of room for him to do the stuff that he's really good at. I mean, he, for me was the absolute, my favorite performance in the Banshees of Inisherin. Um, my favorite part of the killing of a sacred deer. I think that he is a, an absolutely remarkable actor. Um, this role for me, for him, 
was just not quite working. And I don't think it had anything to do with him. I think it had to do with the writing of the character. I also thought Jacob Elordi was really funny in this, actually. But I think that his job was just kind of to like be hot and charming and he's Jacob Elordi. So he's just hot and charming. So, um, but yeah, I think that, I think that it definitely, there were enough laugh lines that it did redeem itself for me on a certain level. Yeah. Speaking of that, the BAFTA nominations were announced, I think yesterday, uh, and Dominic Sessa, who's sort of the hot and not particularly charming uh, Angus in The Holdovers and Jacob Elordi are both up in the best supporting actor category. Of course, they're competing against like Robert De Niro and I, I forget who else, some other legendary person. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Sam, I don't know. I, I It's weird that I, the old guy you know, with one foot in the grave, uh, am having the reaction that I'm having because I would much I, I would think it would be much more likely stuff that you and Xandra would be thinking, which is to me, this is the kind of movie that you can watch half an hour of it and stop and maybe, you know, email some people. I don't like to watch movies that way at all. I think you should just watch movies and you should focus on them. But there's something about this movie. It really is a bunch of little pieces that either do or don't add up at various times. And the little pieces are really quite delicious. I would sort of agree with anybody who said, yeah, but the center does not hold. But I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I feel like the 4 billion views on TikTok mean that people from your generation and younger are just having fun playing around with this big mess of a movie. Well, I think it's kind of their first swing at like an A24 movie. Some like 18-year-old kid who loves Euphoria, you know, finally watches a movie over 90 minutes and makes a TikTok, (laughs) not like breaking the world. I think the thing, and just to bring it back to these pieces part, there, it, that was the most frustrating, like hair pulling part was that it was really funny. It was super spot on the way that the parents, the thing that really stuck out to me is if you've ever been to a family dinner in Connecticut, you know what I mean? The way the parents were avoiding topics like at the table and just like aloof, like regardless of what was going on or what was around them, like, oh, I think we're going to throw a potty. That is like the most shoreline Connecticut post bar mitzvah dinner thing I've ever seen in my life. They nailed that so well. But the problem is, the minute that they crept up on some sort, I'm not looking for like a class warfare movie. And I think the reason why we brought it to like a parasite or the dinner or the menu and all these other movies is that at some point the the plot and the joke was revealed <laughs> for all this grand ice, you know, set design and making sure that this place looked crazy and rich and everybody was like, you know, the way they set that up, they came so close to making a critique about it. Like there's a difference between mocking something and critiquing it with intention. And I feel like with this, they were just like mocking it up until a point, but just never got to that level where it was like a genuine critique. And maybe I'm thinking about it too hard. Like that's that was a conversation I was having with my friends. They were like, Sam, why do you care so much about the plot? Like, does that really matter? Like it was just like a fun, silly movie. And I'm just like, I don't know, I guess it's two and a half hours. Like that, that I just feel like we should treat it like a real film. Um, the, uh, the the music is, we should say, this movie is set in 2006, 2007. Uh, and you, you can, I think if you're attuned to fashion and hairstyles, which I am not, you can pick some of that up. Uh, but it's also very much there in the music. Girls Aloud, MGMT, shout out, Wesleyan, uh, Cold War Kids, The Killers, Pet Shop Boys, Arcade Fire, Black Party, uh, Murder on the Dance Floor, I think is uh, where we end uh, the movie. Uh, and... You know, I guess, Irene, I mean, I'd love you to just to take this in any direction you feel like it. But I, I do think part of the funniness is that this incredibly wealthy family, I mean, unearned wealth, 
you know, with this incredible lifestyle, um, they're kind of trashy. Right? What do they do? They actually sit down in this rather small, shabby room and smoke cigarettes and watch Superbad. Uh, and <laughs> at one point, by the way, these are both a little bit uh, um, uh, anachron- anachronisms. Uh, I don't think Superbad was out yet. Um, nor, as I was, would expect Sam to jump on this, at one point we see hilariously one of several uh, upper class twits uh, at a party doing karaoke to Low by Florida, which I think also had not been released yet. But, you know, I mean, there's just something so trashy. They're sitting around smoking cigarettes and watching stupid movies and playing tennis in their in their tuxedos while smoking cigarettes and swigging champagne on the tennis court. And I just, you know, was it even we need to take these people down? It was like they're taking themselves down. Absolutely. And and that part of it, I, I did like. And when, I, I don't think we mentioned the sister. I don't know her name, but I thought she was so good, too. You know, just kind of like the when she first saw um, uh, Oliver coming to the house and she just kind of gave this little like <laughs> when she saw him, you know, like trying to make herself an object of desire, which is what they were also all doing in a, in a way that was funny. Um, I thought she did a nice job. Um so yeah, and if it had if it had, if that's what it had been throughout, I would have liked it much more. I think, and but I but it's true. I could see, you know, it's hard to write a plot. It's hard to write an ending. So they wanted to. She wanted to, you know, have some kind of crazy twist. But that's where the humor just completely dissolved for me. But I I agree that up until that point, it was it was delightful to watch and funny and and you know it's always fun to make fun of rich people and you know sort of call them out for for the ways in which they're not as exalted as they think they are and everything. But but yeah, I mean, so, uh, we're gonna, yeah, we're going to wrap up here pretty soon. But Zandra, I do feel like. You know, first of all, Fennell is a very interesting person. She uh, she did direct the two movies we've talked about. She also uh, appeared, uh, I think, as the original incarnation of Camilla Parker Bowles in The Crown. Um, I think she might be Andrew Lloyd Webber's goddaughter or something like that. And the two of them collaborated on the Cinderella musical that apparently was kind of a disaster. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I do find myself, I guess you don't feel this way, Zandra, but... I do find myself thinking I would like to see movie five by Fennell because I, like the other two panelists, you know, I thought actually was fairly intrigued by Promising Young Woman. And it was a little heavy handed, I would agree, a little overdetermined in some of the points that it wanted to make. But I feel like this is a person who is going to make a really good movie, maybe sometime in the next three movies. But Sandra, you, you may not share that faith that I have. Oh, I I definitely have faith. Um, I would I would maybe like to see her direct a movie that she hasn't written. (laughs) I'm curious to see what she could do with someone else's material, I guess. Um, And, you know, you mentioned sort of this, this background she has of like, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's goddaughter. She went to Oxford. Like it is kind of funny to watch her make a movie about class. And I think that like her own, I, I don't know this for sure, but I have to imagine that her own class background is contributing to the fact that the messaging on class throughout this movie felt a little muddy. And like that's okay. It can be muddy. But um, but I think that it's I think that it's interesting to kind of observe that about her. And I would I would like to see what she could do with someone else's material. All right, let's uh, grab a quick break here, uh, and we will come back. We will talk about The Holdovers.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. The Holdovers is the eighth feature film directed by Alexander Payne. Um, you probably know him best from the movies Election and Sideways. Uh, maybe Nebraska as well, which I admired a great deal. Uh, it's, it's the second time that Payne and Paul Giamatti have worked together. Obviously, Sideways was the other time. Um, this is about a cantankerous, beyond cantankerous even, schoolmaster uh, at a school called Barton uh, who gets stuck with a, a group of students who have no place to go during the winter break. Um, and the focus gradually devolves down to one particular student, uh, but also the chief cook of the school, uh, Mary Lamb, played by Divine Joy Randolph, also much in the con- uh, conversation about awards these days. I think she's already picked up a Golden Globe, as has Paul Giamatti, as Paul Hunnam. Uh, the third leg of that stool is Dominic Sessa as Angus Tully. Uh, he's the kid with no place to go. So, um, Sam, uh, get us started with this movie. Uh, it's... Um, well, it's it's really nothing like Saltburn, except for the fact that it's about a school <laughs> break. But uh, where do you want to go with this, Sam? Um, well, yeah, it's different because I enjoyed it. Um, this is my bag, right? Like New England prep school, 60s, Dead Poet Society scented, Paul Giamatti. Like this was a movie made for me. I knew what I was getting into. And also I'd like to call out that if you read in the New York Times profile on Giamatti, he took a lot of his experiences from going to Choate and put them into the movie, which a New Haven legend, obviously. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, as someone who kind of went to a prep school in Connecticut, I could like definitely see where he pulled influences. Also someone who was pretty familiar with the detention system and having, you know, these kind of like bigger, like big figures on a campus, like a, like a teacher who like talks like an old sea captain or, you know, uh, I had an English teacher who was obsessed with Ernest Hemingway and would go to Italy to go to these conferences. Like these, these are real people. These really exist. So like, it was cool to see that depicted in a way. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I loved, uh, the character development and relationship bonding between Paul Giamatti and I'm, I'm blanking on the other actor's name, Dominic Sessa, uh, who has a really good piece in GQ today, written by a good writer, Heaven Hale, that I, I enjoyed. Um, I didn't realize there was so much buzz around him, but I uh, I loved it. I thought it was like a good, this is the movie I would have watched with my mom, like in the holiday break. Like I'd never make my mother watch Saltburn. I, she would have loved the whole day. 
Yeah, that would lead to something. <laughs> you don't want to have, you don't wanna have yeah. really uncomfortable conversations with your mother. So just mildly, <laughs> mildly uncomfortable conversations, which the holdovers will get you. Yeah, I mean, I went, I graduated in 1972, which is roughly the time period of this movie, from a boys' school. It was a day school where I went for six years, as mostly as a scholarship student. So I was kind of the Oliver Quick of, of that school. I murdered a number of my classmates in their families. <laughs> but, um, but we wore a jacket and tie every day, and I took uh, five years of Latin. In there, so I could also very much identify uh, with uh, with this movie and with uh, Paul Hunnam, uh, who is a ancient civilization teacher or whatever the hell he calls himself. He's quoting Greek, Latin, and Greek to people. But you know, Irene, I don't know. I found this movie, and I would love to. I don't think I think I'm on. Maybe not exactly like most people. I found this movie to be kind of a searing depiction of grief uh, and, and and just spirit-crushing events in life. It turns out that all three of the protagonists have just a lot of sadness and a lot of thwartedness and have been let down in lots of different ways or, or devastatingly hurt by life events. We find out right at the beginning that Mary's son uh, was killed in Vietnam. We, it takes longer for us to understand the things that are going on inside and outside of the two uh, male leads. But, you know, for all of its kind of, I don't know, fuddy-duddy, Boston in a Christmas time charm. I thought this was a, a really a movie about the, about darkness and and what you do when you're stalled out in a very dark place. Do you stay there? Or do you keep going? But I'd love to hear what hear you maybe even react to that. Yeah, I mean that is a wonderful way to put it. I mean, where, because where I where I start is I had seen the previews and I thought, oh, I don't really know, don't even want to see that curmudgeonly teacher learns to love, you know, feel good movie. I've seen it before. It's not my type of movie, really. Uh, but I was so knocked over when I actually did see it and moved by it. And it just is so much deeper than what I had expected from the preview. Um, and I like Colin, you said it, it was a searing depiction of grief. I think that's a really good way. I, I agree with that um, because it was it wasn't um, it wasn't sappy at all. It was it was kind of the opposite, and it was really trying to show the people in 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 their in their imperfections in a really interesting, wonderful way. Yes, um, you know Seinfeld's writers and 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 producers and Seinfeld himself famously said that one of the rules in the writing room uh, is no lessons, no hugging, no learning, no hugging. Uh, and the holdovers, there's like a little bit of learning and just uh, maybe the uh, a passing hug or two, but it, it really isn't so much about people finding their hearts or anything. It's uh, maybe finding a path that may eventually lead to their hearts. But uh, we want to play a little clip before we go to Zandra about this. Uh, you're going to hear Dominic Sessa as Angus Tully, uh, a smart uh, student who has been abandoned by his family, his family uh, at this school, and Paul Giamatti, the embittered and hard-to-deal-with teacher who is in charge of him. Be one, Cat. Before we get going, can I be candid with you? Mm-hmm. You smell. Like fish. And it's really noticeable towards the end of the day. I can even smell it on your coat. Mind if I crack the window? Trimethylaminuria. Huh? Trimethylaminuria. Means my body can't break down trimethylamine. That's the smell. And, uh, yes. 
more toward the end of the day. Well, your whole life? Mm-hmm. No wonder you're afraid of women. I am not afraid of women. Sorry, Jesus. I shouldn't have said anything. It's... Dr. Gertler says I don't always give consideration to my audience. Oh. And who is Dr. Gertler? My shrink. Has Dr. Gertler ever tried a good swift kick in the ass? Okay. All right, now your turn. Go ahead. Tell me something about me. Something negative. Something negative about you? Sure. Just one thing. Just one. All right. So, Zandra, um, I have a specific thing I want to bring up, but I just I want to get your overall reaction to the movie first. I like Irene was completely bowled over by this movie. I was I was completely surprised. I did not think that this was going to be, you know, like Sam, a, a movie for me. I was like, uh, it's kind of like dudes being dudes. It's very earnest, whatever, whatever. And I was so stunned by it. I laughed. I cried. Um, I do not really cry at movies very often anymore. And this completely got me. This is a movie that I will watch on Christmas for the remainder of my life. But I'd love to know your specific question. <laughs> well, I guess if I had a criticism of this movie, I mean, I, I really, really liked it a lot. I was very moved by it. I certainly think that scene in the kitchen at the Christmas party um, kind of undid me as well. Um, and there are many other scenes that, that could unhinge you and make you cry. If I had a, if I had a criticism of the movie, it would be that several of the characters, including Jamadis, and certainly the parents uh, of uh, of young. Uh, whatever his name is, of young Angus, are are dr- almost overdrawn. They're almost caricatures. I mean, they're, they're, they go, I mean, when we meet Paul Hunnam, he's so awful that he's almost a caricature uh, of an awful person and an awful teacher. Um, and, and, you know, some of the other sort of more minor characters, I think particularly the mother and stepfather uh, of young Angus, who we meet at the end, they're just so unredeemable. I thought, she's you know... You could have probably taken about 10 or 15 percent of the awfulness out of Paul Hunnam and still had a good character and maybe one who didn't seem so exaggeratedly awful. But that might have just been me, Zandra. I get that. I think I firstly, I think that caricature is a little bit. Alex Payne's bread and butter. I mean, we think about election and Tracy Flick has become like kind of the archetypal caricature of a striver. You know, I think that he is actually very good at taking these caricatures and really imbuing them with humanity, which I think is really, really difficult to do. Um, I also think that this caricature of it all is sort of why the Divine Joy Randolph character matters so much. Um, I think that she is for sure the realest, most in her grief, um, most kind of legible character in the movie. And when she's not in it, I actually, I I did feel it. There are like long stretches of the movie where she's not there. And I think that it's, you can really feel her absence in those moments um, because she is really bringing a lot of the humanity. And I think that the way that each character interfaces with her throughout the movie actually just further elevates their own humanity. Like Paul, like Paul Hunnam's kind of like immediate warmth towards her. You immediately see him defending her from these like really uh, bratty boys um, and talking to her and just being really kind and warm to her. And that to me was such a moment of like, oh, this man is not 
he he's not the way that he is with his students with everybody and so i think that she was a really like a proper supporting character like she was kind of the rock of the movie for me yeah i think you know you make a great point uh and sam i had a similar thought but as andrew's saying it it kind of sharpens what i was thinking which is there's a real energy among these three leads uh, and I noticed, for example, there's a moment when uh, when Mary gets dropped off in Roxbury at her sister's apartment, and she's just kind of alone with her sister and with her brother and a little in the background. And it's it's interesting, and it's a good scene. I'm not saying it doesn't belong in the movie. It does. But you just realize how much energy there is in the room when the three of them are there. They are all three of them hurt people, hurt and hurting people. And and the questions they're sort of asking all the time is, should I hurt the other two <laughs> or should I help the other two? And and that question kind of lingers over the movie all the time in a very exciting way. The, this is a really interesting ensemble, the three of them, Sam. Yeah, especially like in an academic setting, because like I think that's probably the through line between Saltburn and this movie is this like institutional characters like the butler in Saltburn. Like they made a really stress when they stressed it really hard to make him like basically the the entire house. That's that's how she described it. And what I was thinking about was like that was a great point, by the way, about caricatures and kind of unpacking it is that when you're in like an academic setting like this, you just kind of think things are the way they are. Like you have like a teacher who's kind of like a hardo and you don't really like stop to think like, huh, how did they get there? Or like a student who's like kind of on the edge or like, you know, a maintenance person or a lunch person. You never like in these ensembles, when you're in these environments, you don't maybe think, huh, how did we get there? And I think that was kind of the beauty of this film is that because of the conditions that they made it, like they're literally the only people on campus they like they had no choice but to like explore each other's grief and bond over that and realize that they had a lot more in common than not. Um, I think like even me in my own personal life, like back when I was in high school a million years ago, I had a couple of those moments where like, you know, they, they used to make us come in on Saturday mornings and that was like our detention. We'd have to do like all the recycling for the building and it'd be like you and the principal or like you and a teacher. And you had like nothing to do but kind of get to know the person better and i think that like that is a good environment like that's one of the upsides of going to like a prep school type thing is that like you're really like in this community it's kind of different than going to just like a school and clocking in and out but i i really loved how he depicted that um and it kind of reminds me of sideways a little bit when we were talking about caricatures and paul giamatti and how he took like something that's so like a, a dude in, having a midlife crisis and kind of like expanded that and looked a little bit deeper. And I think he, Alexander Payne brought that same energy to this film. Yeah. Um, uh, Sam, first of all, I'm shocked to hear that you got detentions. You know, just <laughs> genuinely, I'm speechless. Um, but um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. You know, he brings up uh, sideways Irene, and I think about Thomas Hayden Church's role in that movie, where he is kind of the Mercutio uh, to, to to Paul Giamatti's Romeo. I mean, he's sort of a much, much more connected to a kind of comic universe, uh, and he's easygoing. Where Paul Giamatti's character is very uptight. There is no person like that in this movie, and what there just is, once again, is that. That sense of and one thing it might share with Saltburn, Irene, is whoever you think somebody is on the surface, that's not really who they are. Uh, and uh, often people who seem um, entitled, I don't know, just very quickly, I got an email from somebody I worked with for many, many years who's been reading the newsletter that I write for Hearst and kind of discovered that I didn't grow up rich and that my mother was a secretary, often supported us with her. And she said, I just didn't think that about you, I thought. 
you were this rich person who went to private school in Yale. Uh, and to me, if there's a commonality in these movies, I mean, I think Holdovers does it better, but it's that assumptions that we make about one another are typically wrong and they tend to ignore the pain which we're hiding anyway. Yeah. I mean, ever since you talked about, I've been thinking about caricatures right now. Just, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, yeah, the, the, the parent was a caricature too. Yeah, so maybe nobody, you know, a lot of people seem like, because what I was thinking, the direction I was going in my mind is that when you're the three, because the three leads were not at all to the audience caricatures, um, when, when, when you're grieving sometimes or when you just feel mistreated, you can feel like everyone around you is a caricature. And so that's why the parents, I, I felt comfortable, more comfortable uh, maybe than you did with the fact that, you know, people were just so horrible so horrible and so much pain and and it sort of made sense and then i was thinking that in saltburn the you know rosamund pike was a caricature but she made it so funny that you could see you could sort of see into the other side of who she really is or was or was trying to be or whatever it was and that was part of why it was funny that she actually believed certain things that were absurd um but yeah, there there wasn't a comic relief character in this one. No, not and at all. Even they, though there, yeah, they don't no, let the, they, There's they, no escape valve. There's there's no, nothing to let the pressure out really, except these three people finding their way. We're going to have to go to a break here. Fun fact: also uh, in the holdovers, Carrie Preston plays Miss Lydia Crane, a secretary at the school. People might not know this uh, unless you watch a certain thing. She's a kind of a big deal in the Good Wife non-cinematic universe, uh, and her character there is getting its own season, its own series in February, late February, with none other than Wendell Pierce from The Wire. Anyway, let's take a break, and then the panel will recommend some things. Crying. Thanks to our technical producer today, Kat Pastor, and the producer of this episode, as is usually the case with the nose, is Jonathan McPants. Grayson Hugh wrote and performs the music at the end of our week every week. I should get used to mentioning that more often. Uh, we're going to go to our panel now. Zandra Ellen, Sam Hadleman, Irene Papoulis with some recommendations. Irene, what are you going to recommend? Okay, I'll, I have two quick ones. One is um, I've been watching Monsieur Spade, which just started. It's a series with Clive Owen trying to play Humphrey Bogart, and it's kind of interesting to watch him do that. Um, and it takes place in the French countryside, and it's the character from the, the Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon, which I'm going to rewatch this weekend just just to, uh, to to appreciate it even more. And it's just really fun and interesting and you don't really know what's going on exactly but it's but it take it's starting its exposition in an interesting way so i recommend that um and the other one is an is a random one it's an article i happened to read in the washington post called does your love language really matter scientists are skeptical and i thought that was so interesting because there's so many i've heard that thing about your love languages so many times and so many people have it ingrained in 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 their thinking about love and i've always resisted it and not really known what my love language is and not really liked it and so i'm glad that scientists are skeptical and it was as <laughs> as described in the january 15th washington post all right. Uh, yes, yeah, so just carry that clipping around, around with you. So if it ever comes up, you can just sort of, here, I've got it laminated. You can take it. Uh, <laughs> Sam Hadleman works. Uh, I don't have to do your bio again. Sam Hadleman, what are you going to recommend? 
Um, I'm going to recommend two things. I'll, I'll start with the light one first. Um, I spent in like two weeks in Florida at my dad's house alone. And my dad only has books about mob figures and Ted Williams. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been reading Mr. Untouchable, like the biography of Nikki Barnes. Um, and yeah, it's like a really cool depiction of like 60s and 70s New York, the drug game, um, a lot of actually really good applicable life lessons, which I'm not sure I should be taking from Nikki Barnes, but it was a really good book. And I've really been enjoying reading it on the beach when I could go to the beach. The other one's a little less fun. Um, you know, I'm not sure if everyone has seen the news, but um, Pitchfork folded into GQ. If you're over 50 and don't know what Pitchfork is, it's kind of like the premier music platform, like probably the, one of the last places where you can find good music criticism. And it's just been a terrible week for journalism. It's 10 minutes ago before we got on air, Sports Illustrated folded, like the entire staff got laid off. So I'm going to recommend Mark Hogan's piece in Rolling Stone. He's like one of the legendary Pitchfork writers who unfortunately lost his job. It's called Pouring One Out for Pitchfork, 9.2 publication in a 3.7 digital media world. And yeah, it's super depressing, but really good piece. This make it even more depressing. You can see also this week the Baltimore Sun was bought by one of the Smith uh, Smith family members. They run Sinclair Broadcasting. They are extreme right wing people, and this guy has already met with the Baltimore Sun staff and kind of conveyed his disdain for who they are and what they've been doing. And so the Baltimore Sun, which is a pretty legendary legacy kind of you know East Coast newspaper, is probably not going to be anything like that going forward. Uh, Zandra Ellen, lift our spirits with some recommendations here. Yeah, this is horrible news, and I. I was I am also mourning the death of Pitchfork, which I was reading when I saw the news that it was folding. So that was very upsetting. Um, but I yeah, I'm going to lift our spirits a little bit. I feel like I spent like half this episode bashing a successful female filmmaker. And I want to write that wrong. There was a huge amount of amazing work by female directors this year, including a lot that are up for awards, like Anatomy of a Fall, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show, Past Lives, Celine Song's new film. They're both rightfully getting a lot of award buzz and accolades. And I just wanted to shout out two films by female directors that are not getting quite as much award buzz, but that I loved in 2023, which are Are You There, God? But It's Me, Margaret by Kelly Freeman Craig, which is an amazing adaptation of a Judy Bloom book that was very formative for me. I saw it in a theater on the Upper East Side with my mother, and there was a group of young girls behind us in a row talking the entire time so that we couldn't hear the movie, which is how I recommend everybody enjoy this film. It's a really, really amazing and faithful adaptation, but with some new twists. And the second one is you Hurt My Feelings, which is the new Nicole Hall of Center movie starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Nicole Hall of Center, one of my faves. She's so good at portraying relationships and just sort of like the way that we talk to each other. Um, the dialogue's amazing. There's a really like strange cameo from David Cross and Amber Tamblyn, who are married in real life. Um Really fab two fabulous movies that I, you know, they're not get they're not gonna be nominated for Academy Awards. They're not really those kinds of movies, but they are um wonderful and I highly recommend them. All right. Speaking of female directors, I just want to quickly say, and we're only one episode in, but a true detective night country, uh, which brings Jodie Foster to the small screen for the first time in a very since she was a child actress, basically. Uh it's already really, really interesting, and it is directed by uh, uh Issa Lopez. I think has one movie under her belt that I have never seen before, but it looks like it's going to be really interesting. And I listened to her be interviewed by Chris Ryan on The Watch uh, as I was driving home last night. And she's just 
she's terrific to listen to. She's really interesting. Um, and all the thoughts that she has had that has led up to this really interesting movie, which I think we're going to – a very interesting series, that is. I think we're, we're – I'm pushing for us to do next Friday kind of a concept show that involves that murder at the end of the world in the most recent se- season of Fargo. It's kind of hard-boiled women in cold climates. Uh, but the thing I guess I will recommend, it's funny because I was, when you watch The Holdovers, you think of a lot of things. I'm of the generation that grew up reading books like a, a separate piece, uh, you know, one of those great sort of private school tragedy books uh, and Good Times, Bad Times by James Kirkwood. Um, and, and there are plenty of movies, Dead Poets Society, I think came up in your discussions panel. But um, I, I would actually, if for the few people who've never seen Rushmore, um, it's not like The Holdovers at all. It's a Wes Anderson movie. It's kind of before Wes Anderson's tweenness got either out of control or into its full-blown glory, depending on how you process Wes Anderson. But you also get a chance to see Brian Cox in a role somewhat different from Logan Roy. Jason Schwartzman uh, has the lead in this. Uh, Olivia Williams, who also played Camilla Parker Bowles on the crowd, uh, is also in it. And of course, Bill Murray plays an incredibly depressed businessman. Uh, and I, I think it's the most coherent. I like Wes Anderson anyway. But if you find Wes Anderson kind of coherent and more about style than about uh, having a movie that kind of hangs together fully, uh, Rushmore would be the antidote to that, uh, I think. And it, it is a really interesting movie about one person's relationship with a private school that he loves in a way that the school cannot love him back. Anyway, thanks to our wonderful panel. Uh, we'll say goodbye. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday. I'll meet you down on a side across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we'll be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.